from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer who has turned childhood lore into terrifying tales. Her stories are skillfully written and leave your imagination spent. She's joining me today to talk about her new short story collection, Tales My Grandmother Told Me, as well as her previous novella, Knock Knock. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Heather Miller. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for joining me. I was really blown away by the almost indescribable way you write. You somehow use very subtle language with occasional well-placed stabs of graphic content so that the two elements kind of have a synergistic effect where one plus one equals three on the scare level. So I'm very interested in hearing about how you craft your stories. I hope that what I have to say will be interesting. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Well, first of all, let me just say that I am really jealous of you having Grandma Nan. Because I loved my grandmothers to death, but none of them told me badass horror stories. So, if you would, could you please tell us a little bit about Grandma Nan and her role in your book, which is aptly titled, Tales My Grandmother Told Me. Yes. My grandma Nan, she lived with us most of my childhood when I was growing up. So she was the one who took care of me when I came home from school. We spent a lot of time together. She loved scary stuff. So we did that together. She would tell these scary stories. We would read scary stories together. We would watch scary movies together. Things entirely inappropriate for the age that I was, but yes, <laughs> we did it anyway. She was just a really cool person. She was this tiny, little bitty, short lady. She was four foot, 11 and a half. Oh, wow. But she was also the loudest person you'd ever meet. I mean, her voice could carry across a gym. She's just, she was a unique personality and everybody loved her. And she, you couldn't help but love her. And she had these stories that she would tell to myself, my brother, our cousins that were just, terrifying to us as children and so then when I grew up obviously I finally grew up I guess started <laughs> writing I knew that I wanted to 
take her stories and sort of add to them a little bit so that they were fully fleshed out short stories and put them in a book together and share them with the world. So that's how that book came about. Awesome. Well, so if I remember correctly, I think you said she passed away in 2006? Yes. Okay. Did she live with you up until her passing? She did not live with me. I was 25 when she passed away. She either lived with my mom or my uncle the last 20 or so years of her life. She lived with one of her children. So partly she lived with us and partly she lived with my uncle. Okay. Well, the foreword to the book is written by the great Ron Kelly. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about how he came to be the person that wrote the foreword? I can. I was looking for someone to just write a blurb for the book. And I thought, who do I know that sort of knows who I am enough that they would take a chance on me and who also writes sort of similar things to what I'm writing in this book? And I thought of his Southern Fried Horror and all these short stories that Ronald Kelly writes that are very specific to the part of the country he lives in. And so I sent him a message and I said, hey, would you do a blurb for my book? My stories are sort of the country cousins to your Southern Fried Horror. And he answered and he said, I'll write a blurb. And if I really like the book, would you like me to write a foreword as well? And I just about had a heart attack because I was like, <laughs> yes, please. High praise. And then, then it was three or four weeks that it took him to read the book and get back to me because he's obviously a busy guy. But in my mind, I was just thinking, he said, if he likes it, he'll write a foreword. Well, what if he doesn't like it? Then what am I going to do? But then he <laughs> did. And he sent me the foreword and I cried when I read it because it was it was so sweet. I just I felt like I had arrived because Ronald Kelly liked my stories. Nice. <laughs> so the first story that really creeped me out was Burglar Man, which you state in the author notes is based on a song that was sung by multiple generations of your family. So what inspired you to take a kid's song, which is kind of cute and funny and flesh it out as such a scary story? And how did you approach it? Well, first, I have to question if that's really a kid's song, because it's not really children's material. It is a funny song, really. Mm -hmm. um, and Well, I mean, like Ring Around the Rosies, when you think about that, that's not really a kid's song, but that, it is. That's true. We were talking about the Black Plague when we were a kid. <laughs> Burglar Man is certainly a song that was sung to us as kids, and I've sung it to all my kids, and, you know, everybody in our family knows that song. And my best friend learned it from my grandma, and she sings it to her kids. So it, it makes the rounds. Mm -hmm. And it is funny. I never thought it was scary, even as a kid. I just thought it was funny because, you know, how it ends. Mm -hmm. But then when I wrote it, I wanted to make it, I guess it's not so much scary as just kind of gross. The way that I described the old lady in the story, I was just picturing some old people I've known in my life who maybe don't really take care of themselves very well anymore. And, and they get <laughs> kind of gross in ways. Mm -hmm. I love old people. I'm not trying to talk about about old people, but you know, <laughs> we'll all be there, there one day. <laughs> there's some parts in there about her feet that, and I hate feet anyway. I just hate feet of anybody. And so writing the parts about how gross her feet are when he's under the bed and he sees her feet coming and it was, it grossed me out. But I couldn't not put that song in and make a story of it because it is sort of the most well-known of Grandma Nan's 
stories and songs. Everybody knows that one. The other ones, some people remember and some people don't, but I had to put that one in. I just had to. Yeah, I think one of the creepiest parts of that story for me is I forget what she actually says, but it's when she's standing facing the mirror, he's under the bed and without looking at him says, I can see you there, young man. I don't know why the way you wrote that, the setting leading up to that. And when she finally says that, I remember like physically shivering when I read that. I think the part about when that line hits in that story is that up until that point, he's the bad guy. You know, he's in her house. He's going to rob her. He's even thinking about maybe he'll have to kill her. He's the bad guy. And then all of a sudden she says that and you realize that maybe he's the one who's in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Because all (laughs) I mean, it slowly gets a little creepy from her end. But then when she says that, it's almost like you can in your head visibly see the roles reversed. It's like the predator has now become the prey. And it's just weird how the way you set it up, that one little line she says, it's like, oh, God, this shit just got weird. So (laughs) (laughs) the story cries from the attic was really intense. The story involves the death of a child. And I know from my day job, when we deal with the death of a child, it affects the people that I work with that have children way more than it does the people that don't. You being a mother yourself, even though it's fiction, does it affect you negatively when you write stories that involve the death of children? And if so, do you ever have to sometimes step back and recover or engage in what I like to call an emotional palate cleanser? (laughs) I, I don't like to read about bad things happening to kids. That's my one thing in stories. If they go into detail about kids being hurt or scared, I just I can't do it. I have to stop reading. So in Cries from the Attic, there is the death of a child, but I write it very sort of vaguely. Mm -hmm. I don't give a lot of details. I don't talk about it from the child's perspective. So you're not in the middle of that pain and fear that the child has. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of something that happens very quickly. And then we get on with the story. I don't know that I could write it in a detailed way. I think that would bother me too much. Yes. Okay. So it sounds like you probably don't read Splatterpunk where there's not a lot. I have read some, but like if something bad happens and it's quick and it's real general, I'm fine. But if they start going into details, I just say, nope. (laughs) Mm -mm." Gotcha. Well, the creature that drains the blood from sheep, which is a lot like the legend of the Chupacabra, but you do mention in the book, I don't think they started naming that phenomenon until how many years was it after your grandmother told you the story? I want to say, you know, because I did a little research when I was doing this, and I want to say it was sometime in the 70s. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was 60s or 70s when they started actually using the term chupacabra. And the way my grandma told the story was that she heard it from her teacher in school. Well, she would have been in school in the 30s, very early 40s. So Obviously, if she really did hear it in school, which I don't know if she did or not, she might have just made that up. (laughs) But if she did, then that's 20, 30 years before the term chupacabra came into use. Okay. So she never used that word when she told the story. And it wasn't until I started kind of making notes to write these stories myself that I thought, you know, this is really just a chupacabra story. But I don't know if she really heard that as a kid growing up or if she just made that part up. I don't know. And I can't ask her now. So she took that secret to the grave. (laughs) 
so when she told it, it was always sheep that were involved? I think so, yeah. Because I think doesn't chupacabra literally translated mean goat sucker? Right, it does. Yeah. So was so the actual chupacabra legend, is it talking about goats? I think so. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that nowadays there's multiple versions of the legend and what yeah. the original legend was. I don't know. Okay. Well, your description of that creature crawling under the cover with Nina smelling. This is this is another example of the way you write where just the description of this thing that you can't see. She's just using her olfactory senses, her hearing. It crawls under the covers with her. It starts smelling her and then it just sleeps there next to her all night long. It's a great example of how the most terrifying things are sometimes those things that you can't see and things that could possibly happen as opposed to what we can see and what actually does happen. So when writing that scene, how do you figure out which elements to focus on that will give the reader the most fodder for their imagination to run with without spelling out the appearance of the creature or giving them any kind of intense action? Well, I have to give credit to my grandma partly on this because when she told the story, that's what she did. She would tell us what the girl heard and felt before she would kind of reveal what it was. So that's how I heard it originally. And I'm so glad you liked that part because when I wrote it and then went back and read over it, even though I had just written it, I was like, oh, this is (laughs) creepy. But I think that the unknown is the scariest thing in the world. I think that really all of our fears come down at their basis part to fear of the unknown you know, the sound that shouldn't be there because there shouldn't be anyone to make it or the thing in the corner of your eye when you should be alone in a room or just being in the dark where you don't know what's there. That not being in control, I think, is what scares people more than anything, not knowing what's there and therefore not knowing how to fight it. I think that's the scariest thing in the world. And so when I did that, you know, in that scene, Nina, she's laying there. It's dark. There's something coming. She knows there is, but she's so scared. She really can't move to look and see what it is. And even if she could move to look, I don't know that she would want to. So I had to just use everything that she would be able to feel or be able to tell about this thing that was with her without actually seeing it. And I probably rewrote that paragraph multiple times just to get just the right words and the right the right feel to it. You know, it was not hard. It was kind of fun to go over and go, Ooh, we can change this. And that'll be a little bit creepier. And I like to have the feelings and the emotions that go along with fear Mm -hmm. and sort of build them up before you really reveal what the monster is. I love to do that. I love to read stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question or not. No, no. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am a big fan of psychological horror, so I really like the story of Two Heads Are Better Than One. The story is a grave example of how repressed feelings will always come bubbling up in unhealthy ways, whether that be sexual urges or, in this case, anger and resentment from unrequited love. Do you think that there are people that are mentally healthy enough to just respond to everything that's thrown their way in a healthy manner? Or do you think we all have a dark side? I think we all have a dark side. I tried to say that creepy. (laughs) Everyone has a dark side. (laughs) We have a dark side. That's right. I think everybody has a little bit of a dark side. Not necessarily dark enough that you're going to go murder people like in the story. And everybody has 
unhealthy ways that they deal with things sometimes. Some are obviously worse than others. But no, I don't think everybody has healthy reactions to everything all the time. Everybody has something that they do that is probably not the best, but it's just how we cope with things. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, we're not running around killing people to cope <laughs> with things. Are you a fan of psychological horror? I do like psychological horror. Shirley Jackson, I think, is the queen of psychological horror, and I love her stuff. So, And some other newer stuff, too. But she was probably my first introduction to really getting into people's heads through writing and making people feel like they can't trust the narrator because they're not quite sure the narrator is sane. Yeah, I, I like stuff like that. Well, the next story that really struck me was Girl's Best Friend. And it's kind of like a teenage slasher story. And it's one of the more, I want to say, violent stories in the book, but it's not like there's really violence, the verb. It's kind of like the aftermath. And you say in the notes that normally the story involved a girl home alone and someone breaking in, but that your grandma always told it with a sleepover or camping involved. Mm -hmm. So. I'm curious, because your grandmother was such a great storyteller, do you think if she had been in different circumstances that she would have been a writer herself? I don't know. She never, as far as I know, she never tried writing. We didn't find any hidden story she'd written when she died or anything. She, I think she probably could have been a writer if she had wanted to, but as far as I know, she never really expressed an interest in doing that or tried it. But she certainly had the dramatic flair, I suppose, to make up stories. And if she had written them down, then I think she could have at least had a little following. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I don't really think she wanted to do that. I don't think that was something that interested her. So the stories that she told, were some of them like original, like things she just made up herself? Most of the stories have a base in a sort of more broadly known folk horror kind of thing or urban legends. But there are some that I couldn't really find anything for. Don't ask me which ones they were because I don't remember now. <laughs> I'd have to get the book out and go through it. But some of them could have been her own stories. My mom used to tell a story about how when she was a little girl, they had people that prank called their house all the time. And my grandma got really mad. So my mom wakes up one night in the middle of the night and my grandma's in the hallway just outside her room and these people have called again and my grandma is on the phone with these people that keep pranking calling them telling them that she's going to send the little white creatures that live in her basement to their house <laughs> to get them if they don't quit prank calling their house so i mean she could she could certainly make stuff up on the fly if she needed to uh, her brain just worked like that she was creepy inflict a little psychological terror herself right <laughs> I'm guessing they never called back those people. Uh, so did she ever use that as a tactic if you guys weren't minding what she said? Or, or were you always you guys always fell in line when Grandma Nan? Uh, I don't know that we always fell in line, but she didn't. I don't remember her ever using anything like that on us. Uh, I think she just, you know, threatened to whack us with a wooden spoon if we didn't do what we were supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> and she Old would do school. it, too. And those things hurt. Yeah, I saw the picture of her. She's from a bygone era where corporal punishment was a thing. <laughs> she would. She would get you with that thing. She would. When we went on trips, she would take her wooden spoon in the car. No. And she would hold it up. You know, if my brother and I were fighting in the back seat, she would just hold that wooden spoon up and we would just quit. <laughs> we would be very well behaved. So it wasn't a wooden spoon. It was the wooden spoon. She had a I specific mean, was, one. 
No, it was just whichever one she happened to grab. Oh, okay. She, she had one with her. <laughs> nope. She just opened the drawer in the kitchen. Whichever one was closest, she would grab it, mm. hold it up. And we knew we better stop whatever we were doing. <laughs> Pavlovian response to the wooden spoon. <laughs> That's right. Maybe I should try that on my kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't have to actually hit them. Well, no, I guess you would. Hmm. At once, that? maybe you'd have. Yeah, yeah. Then maybe I shouldn't try that on my kids. <laughs> Everybody listening, she's not really going to do that. <laughs> so, um, did the stories your grandmother told you? Actually, I think I know the answer to this question. You kind of alluded to it earlier. You said a lot of the stories she told you were completely inappropriate for your age, because that's what I wanted to know. Was like, did she? censor them or alter them in any way when you were younger and then as you got older they became more graphic or was it just uncensored all the way i think she just told the same version all the time no matter how old we are i think that maybe when we were really young we didn't understand everything that was happening in the stories like in cries from the attic you know there's these cries because this man killed his wife and his baby and we i'm sure didn't understand why he had killed them when we were children and then of course as we got older we would understand but uh, yeah i think she told the same stories i like to tell the story that the first time i watched the exorcist with her i was five years old that's intense <laughs> so it was christmas time and my parents were decorating in the living room uh, putting up the tree and stuff. And I was tired of waiting on my father to untangle all the lights. So I went in my grandma's room and she was watching The Exorcist. And so I just sat in the floor in her room and watched, you know, she had one of those enormous old TVs that sat on the floor. Yeah. And I just sat down on the floor and watched it with her. Five years old. She didn't stop me. The wooden box with the big cathode ray tube. Yeah. Old school TV. Yeah. Yes. Well, all around great book. Thank you. Tales My Grandmother Told Me, 13 Unsettling Stories. Was it intentionally 13 for dramatic effect, or was that just yes. happenstance? Yes, it was. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, in your novella, Knock Knock, the story is about a group of paranormal investigators, and to me seems very technical. Is the technical nature of the book for meticulous research or have you ever taken part in a paranormal investigation yourself i have not but i have watched a whole lot of episodes of you know ghost hunters uh -huh. ghost adventures all those shows like that i think i did look up some stuff i think i had like you know ghost hunting for dummies next to me while i was writing those scenes i had it from the library i don't actually own it but yeah I, i've never done it myself ghost hunting yeah. Yeah, I guess they do on those shows. I haven't seen too many of them. I guess they do get pretty technical when they're trying to explain what's going on, especially with like EVP. They get into the technical aspects of the instruments and recorders they're using. So do you believe in what paranormal investigators find or kind of like Mitch in your story? Do you think that they're like scam artists? I think that the people who do the shows that are so popular, I think, you know, 95% of that is just drama and mm. intense music. And I don't think that most of what they're doing is anything real. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that there might be real spirits, ghosts, whatever out there. I think that there's 
I'm what I call a believing skeptic or a skeptical believer, which is that I do think there are things that we can't understand. And some stuff people find is real, some isn't. But I would never say that it's all fake. Well, you actually have Knock Knock broken up into three different narratives with the stories of Millie and her two children, Suzanne and Mitch. So in the story, you show how the characters resent each other, but you also show from the character's perspective why they do the things the other person resents them for. So I understand how you write from the perspective of Mitch and Suzanne, but how did you get into the mind of Millie, who was of a much different generation? Well, honestly, I used my grandma Nan as a model for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first started writing the book, the character of Millie was much more lovable in my head than she ended up being by the time I had finished the book. So a lot of her was based on my grandmother. And then I love old people. Or, you know, maybe old is not the proper term. I don't know if we're supposed to use that. <laughs> but I love old people and I love to listen to their stories. I think people really are just collections of stories. And I love to hear about, you know, the old days. And sometimes they say things that we would never say today, you know, would never be okay to do today. But it was their reality. And so I've listened to a lot of older people talk about their lives and listen to them complain sometimes about, you know, kids these days. And <laughs> though I don't agree with them, I can kind of understand where they're coming from. Because even as I get older, I can look at, you know, my kids generation. And sometimes I'm just like, what are these stupid kids doing? You know, <laughs> so I, I can kind of relate to that. And I just, I guess, because I've always known and been around a lot of older people from hanging out with my grandma Nan and her friends. Yeah. So I, I had a lot to draw on for that for Millie. You feel like maybe one of the things you have working for you is that you have a lot of empathy? Possibly. I think that people who know me might think that that is not a true statement. <laughs> um, but it's because I'm one of those people that I feel so much of other people's emotions that I have to sort of shut myself off from it sometimes. And that can make me seem cold or like I don't care. It's not that I don't care. It's that sometimes I care too much and I have to block it out. But I do feel it. And I guess it shows up in my writing that I can kind of understand where people are coming from, even when I don't necessarily agree with where they're coming from. Well, in particular, you paint a very bleak existence for Suzanne that reminded me of that quote from Thoreau that says, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Do you plan on writing anything else with her character? Because you wrote her character so effectively, I feel like I have this emotional investment in her and I want her to somehow break out of her mundane existence. <laughs> <laughs> I put I put a lot of myself into Suzanne, a lot of where I have been at points in my life when I had that feeling of being caught in a life that was not really what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of me in her, although I'm not really like that anymore, but I can remember those days. I don't think that Suzanne is going to show up anymore, but I do think that maybe the paranormal research team that's in the book might show up down the road somewhere. When I first started writing, the first thing I ever thought I should write was, I think I'll write some stories around 
a ghost hunting team Mm -hmm. because I like the shows, but they do seem so fake. And I thought, well, if you write it as a book, you can make these things that are happening seem more real and seem more scary and less kind of cheesy than they do on the TV shows. So the paranormal researchers, Jackson and Teresa and Melissa and some uh, Carrie, that's their names. They might uh, show up somewhere down the road. I'm horrible at remembering my own characters' names. I really am. I have to, even when I'm writing a book, I have to keep like notes in a little separate window on my computer of everybody's names so that I can remember who I'm even supposed to be writing about. I'm terrible about that. Yeah. Well, you're not the first writer that's told me that. Tell me about your contribution to These Lingering Shadows, which is a short story anthology. It is. These Lingering Shadows is a collection of gothic stories. Originally, we had said we were going to do Halloween anthology, and then it got kind of confusing because Damon Manx, that's Manx with an M. He says I'm supposed to remember Manx with an M. Um, I don't know what that's about. But anyway, what else would it be? <laughs> he's, he's the owner of Last Waltz Publishing, and we were talking, some of us that work with that publishing house, and originally he said he wanted a Halloween anthology, and so I'm thinking of Halloween stories, but then he said, no, 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 not Halloween stories, just an anthology that's going to come out around Halloween, but mm. gothic stories. So I thought, well, that's actually even better, because gothic is what I love, and that's my thing. That's what I grew up reading, is the gothic stories. So... My story, it's the first story in the anthology. It's called The Far Field. And when I was sort of brainstorming, I thought, okay, everybody's going to do a gothic story. They're going to do a haunted house or, you know, a haunted library or a haunted hospital or something. And so I wanted to set mine somewhere that wouldn't be something that everybody else was using. And so I just had the idea that why don't I make it be somewhere that's outside and it's not in a building at all. So my story is set in the past, sort of a English manor house, lords and ladies kind of thing. And it's about a young maid in this house who gets taken advantage of by the son of the lord of the house. And well, I don't want to give too much away, but she gets her revenge on him out in the far field. And so you're obviously a part of Last Waltz Publishing, and I'm trying to remember, have you published any short stories outside of Last Waltz? I have a story in an anthology that comes out tomorrow, actually, from Black Spot Books. But other than that, all my short stories have been with Last Waltz. Okay. Yeah, I'm just always curious, people that write short stories, how they end up in anthologies. How did you end up in this particular one that's uh, coming out tomorrow? Uh, For the one that's coming out tomorrow, I did send in a story to a submission call. The anthology is called Into the Forest. It's tales centered around Baba Yaga. And I just found the call and I said, "Ooh, you know, I like Baba Yaga. I remember reading about her when I was a kid. So I wrote... It's not even really a story so much as it's just it's like a scene. It just tells you the scene. It's called Baba Yaga in Repose. And it's Baba Yaga in today's time when everybody has kind of stopped believing in her as a real person. And she's put herself and her hut with the chicken legs and her whole forest that she lives in. She's put it all under like a magical sleeping spell. And she's just waiting until 
people believe in her again. And so it, it just it just sort of describes this magical sort of sad scene where Baba Yaga is in this enchanted sleep waiting until the world needs her again. And it's at the end of the anthology, which seems like the perfect place to put it to me. So I'm glad that's where they put it. Well, and you also do book reviews, and I believe it is in a blog called the Quaint and Curious Volumes Review Blog. It is called Quaint and Curious Volumes, yes. I started that in 2020 because, you know, we were all stuck at home and we couldn't go anywhere. And I always read lots of books anyway, and I heard about this thing called Bookstagram, and I thought I might as well do this. And I started reviewing and in the beginning, I just reviewed books that I owned already. And then I started getting requests from authors and publishers and, you know, marketers saying, if I send you this book, will you review it? Because I guess people like my reviews, which is, you know, nice. And it was through the reviewing that I met so many authors in the sort of the indie publishing scene and through talking to them was what really made me think that maybe I should try my hand at writing. So Knock Knock was my first book. I wrote it in four weeks and it was really just kind of an experiment for me to see if other people liked my writing. And then they did and it's just kind of snowballed from there. Well, tell me about Last Waltz Publishing. Once you got started writing, how did you end up with them? And what's the uh, process like publishing with them? Last Waltz, I ended up with because I met Damon Manx. And I reviewed some of his books that he wrote and some books that he had published through Last Waltz. And he kind of started trying to recruit me very early on in our friendship saying, you know, we'd really like to publish something of yours. If you have something, you know, send it to us. And there were several indie publishing houses that I thought about seeing if they would publish tales, my grandmother told me. But the thing that I really liked about Last Waltz was that they're very selective about what they publish. They like old school horror. They're not a lot of extreme horror. And people who like extreme horror, more power to them. Go for it. <laughs> but it's not my thing. I like good old fashioned, you know, ghosts and gothic and atmosphere and a slow build up. That's what I like. And everything that I saw from Last Waltz, it wasn't that everything they published was gothic horror, but it was all very, it was stuff that I liked. I appreciated that they were selective in what they published. And Damon seemed like a nice guy. And he kept saying, if you have something, I sure would like to have it. So mm -hmm. one day I just sent him a message and I said, hey, do you want to publish my story? And he hadn't even read any of it. He was like, yes, yes, I do. So mm -hmm. It was that easy because he had seen, you know, little bits of stuff that I had written before that little short stories that I had shared online or excerpts that I had shared on social media from what I was working on. So he knew that he liked the way that I wrote. And so he just said, yes, send it to me. Let's do it. And it was great because I like to write, but I hate the sort of technical side of publishing a book, the formatting and the covers and I'm not good at that kind of stuff so it was very nice to just be able to say here's my manuscript please make it pretty and then we'll be good to go and he did he took care of all that he dealt with all the stuff that I don't like to do and the book came out in September and it was great we hit number one on Amazon for a day or two which made me happy because uh -huh. I never thought that would happen um <laughs> 
and people seem to really like it. And I love hearing people talk about which stories they like best in Tales My Grandmother Told Me because everybody likes a different set of stories. And it's, it's just funny to me to hear the different things that people like. And so These Lingering Shadows is also with Last Waltz. And I was just invited to write for that. I didn't have to submit. They said, mm-hmm. everybody that we know that we like their writing, please write a story for us. And they have another anthology coming out. I think it's going to be in January. Tales from the Monoverse, which is based on the world that Jack Wells has created for his monochrome noir series, which is excellent um, series as well. It's not really horror. It's got some horrific elements. It's sort of uncategorizable books, honestly, but I really like them. So I have a story that's going to be in that called Lady in Red, which is also a ghost story, but it's set in his monochromatic world. So, so far, I really like working with Last Waltz. Damon and I seem to be kind of on the same page about what we like and where we want to see the company go in the future. Awesome. Yeah, I understand what you're uh, saying about being selective and who they publish. I had the pleasure of having Jack Wells on the show when books one and two were out. I still have not got a chance to read book three. But oddly enough, right before we started recording, I got Damon Manx's book called Hacked in Two. So uh, looking forward to reading that. And who knows, maybe I can get Damon Manx on the show. <laughs> oh, Damon's story in Hackton 2 is crazy. Oh, is it? It's a very meta kind of story. Awesome. It's trippy, but it's great. Yeah. Sounds like it's right up my alley. Well, I read that you are a stay-at-home mom. How do you schedule your writing around taking care of your family? Because I know you're always on the clock. (laughs) I am a stay-at-home mom. I have five kids, but only two that are still kids. Mm -hmm. My oldest is 24, and then I have, it's 24, 20, 19, 11, and 9. That's my kids' ages. So the older three, you know, they're off there doing their own thing. It's just the younger two, really, at this point that, our kids and we do homeschool. So that takes up part of our day, but they're old enough now that they don't need me constantly. You know, they can get their own snacks and drinks and they don't need me to change their diapers. (laughs) There, there certainly was a point in my life when I would really not have had time to do all the writing, reading and reviewing that I do now, but they are all old enough that I have plenty of time in the day to do what I need to do. But I do have to schedule it around fixing meals and Mm -hmm. doing school with the younger two. But it's really I don't know, it's not that hard to me. Some people act like it's crazy (laughs) that you have to schedule. And I'm like, it's really not. I'm a morning person. So I get up pretty early. And depending on what I'm writing, I'll either write quite a lot in the morning before everybody gets up, or I'll use that time to get all the chores and things that need to be done around the house finished so that as soon as school is done, then I can spend the afternoon writing. It's not a big deal to me. I'm good at multitasking and time management, I guess. I just fit it in around the other things I have to do. And you also have the wooden spoon. I do. I might have to use that. If you guys don't leave me alone while I'm trying to write, I'm use this wooden spoon. I do sometimes have to tell them I like to sit out on my back deck at the table back there and write in the afternoons. And our house is like the cool house in the neighborhood where all the neighborhood kids come to play. Mm. And I'll be like, you guys, <laughs> you have to go play in the front yard. You cannot be back here screaming. I need semi quiet at least so that I can concentrate, go somewhere else, you know. So I do have to do that sometimes because they do get a little loud. Well, when it comes to 
short stories versus novella. Do you outline or are you a pantser? I'm mostly a pantser. I generally know when I start a story, I know how it's going to start and I know how it's going to end. And I try to concentrate more on, like, instead of doing an outline, I will usually write down several questions about the story, about what emotions I want the story to convey, pe- characters' motivations. I sort of brainstorm that out mm-hmm. and then just kind of let the story flow. I don't ever make actual outlines for anything. Even if I did make outlines, I probably wouldn't follow them. So mm-hmm. it would be useless. Yeah, I've always wondered if anybody does that. Like, you know, I'm not a writer, but in my head, I'm like, well, a short story is short, so you don't need an outline. But I wonder if that's the truth or not with everybody. I mean, do you know of other writers that outline short stories, like in the traditional bullet point way? I mean, I don't know right off the top of my head. I couldn't tell you any. I'm sure there are probably some who do that, but I sure don't. Well... Knock Knock was published in 2021, and my question was going to be what set you online to start not only writing but also publishing, but it sounds like you were in the same boat as a lot of people during COVID. Right. Mine sort of had to do with COVID, but it also just had to do with the fact that I was at that point in my life where my kids were finally to the point where they didn't need me all the time. And I suddenly found myself with a little extra time every day. And and like I said, through the reviewing, I got to know a lot of authors and I realized that there were all these indie publishing houses out there that you could work with. And it didn't have to be as difficult as it would be to get published by one of the big mainstream publishers that you could go through these smaller avenues and get things done quicker and easier. And I just figured, why not go for it? Do you have to be inspired? Like, does an idea for a book just kind of alight upon you? Or do you just get it in your head that, you know, like, all right, I want to write. There's a submission call, so I'm going to sit down and write. Or do you have to be inspired? Generally, I have to be inspired. Writing for submission calls is not something I'm great at. I'll see the call and I'll think, oh, you know, I'd like to write for that one. But if a story that fits that call doesn't come to me, then I just kind of sit and stare at it till the deadline passes. And then that's that. Mm. I tend to get ideas just from the weirdest random things. I mean, I have a whole list of stories, story ideas that I'll get to at some point. It just depends on which one I'm in the mood for Mm. when it comes time to write something new. The story that I'm working on right now, which maybe another novella or maybe a full novel. We'll see how it goes. I had the idea for it. We were out one day. We were coming home and it was just pouring down rain. I mean, this is Oklahoma. So when we get spring storms, they're crazy, you know, and everything floods really fast. And we were trying to come home through one of these storms and you couldn't see five feet in front of you on the road. And in our tiny little town, there's railroad tracks that go straight across Main Street. And we had to go over them to get home. And I just had this thought as we went over them, the rain is so loud, you know, in the car that you wouldn't even hear a train if it was coming. Mm -hmm. And so then I got to thinking, well, what if, what if, you know, because the power is out all the time around here during storms. And what if the railroad crossing things didn't come down and you wouldn't know a train was coming. And then that started this whole story. So that's how my story that I'm writing right now 
begins is this lady's coming home in the storm and this train is coming and it hits her and she's knocked unconscious. And then when she wakes up, everything is just really, really wrong. Uh-huh. And it's some creepy stuff happening. But yeah, I just get like little moments that happen in my day to day life, inspire my brain to just take that moment and think if we tweaked this just a little bit, you know, where could the story go? And that's kind of how I work. I have to have that moment in my brain and then I just go with it. Well, what is your writing medium? Do you do the mechanical typewriter or are you on the laptop? I'm on the laptop. I also write poetry. Uh, When I write poetry, I'm usually I have a pen and, you know, a notebook or some notebook paper. But for writing stories, yeah, my hand would cramp so bad if I tried to write that with a pen. There's no way. I do have an old antique typewriter that sits up on the top of my bookshelf, but it doesn't work. (laughs) I'm definitely a laptop kind of gal and I can take my laptop, you know, wherever with me. I've taken it on vacation and written in hotel rooms in the early morning hours before anybody else wakes up. It's just nice. It's take your stuff. Everything's on there. Go wherever you need to go and write. Mm-hmm. I had a uh, Brittany Johnson on the show and I dared her to take her mechanical typewriter into Starbucks and just start hammering away. I don't know if she ever did it or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is your writing atmosphere? Am I looking at it? Looks like a very refined bookshelf behind you. I have. I write in all kinds of places, first of all. This is sort of my main uh, writing space. I have eight of these big black bookshelves behind me full of horror books. Nice. Um, I have quite a collection. (laughs) Um, And in fact, my mother passed away earlier this year, and she was also a lover of horror. So I inherited all of her books. I had six bookshelves before, and so then I had to bring in two more just so I could add all of her stuff to my stuff. Nice. So I have this room that has all my bookshelves, and I've tried to sit at a desk and write, and I cannot do it. So I have like a little couch that sits in front of the window in this room, and usually I'm just sitting there, you know, with a little lap desk with my laptop on it and writing because I like to be comfortable and desks are not comfortable to me. But I also, you know, sometimes I write downstairs in the living room or at the dining room table or out on the back porch. I write wherever I just happen to want to be that day, really. Do you ever do what I sometimes jokingly refer to as the cloud method, where if the mood strikes you and you're out and about, you write down on your phone and then suck it into your computer? I have definitely made some notes or I'll think of like a perfect sentence, you know, and so I'll write it down and send it to myself. I've never really written a whole lot just out and about like that. But I, I made a a post one time on Facebook where I took screenshots of all the weird messages I had sent to myself that Mm. were just weird little random ideas that would not make sense to anybody else or just (laughs) sentences or two or three sentences to describe something that I thought, oh, I need to remember that and put it somewhere. And I do that occasionally, but mostly those things just get forgotten. Eventually, I don't usually actually use them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I could probably go through my phone right now and find a 100 little notes I've written to myself. And at this point, just look at it and go, I don't have any idea what I was thinking when I wrote this. (laughs) Well, do you do anything outside of reading that you feel makes you a better writer? Um, I don't know. What else would you do outside of reading that makes you well, a better like, writer? Um, I had um an author on. She lives in Milledgeville, Georgia, home of Flannery O'Connor, and she said that 
Flannery O'Connor and a lot of her contemporaries painted. And it's not so much that they particularly liked it a lot or were even any good at it. They just felt the attention to detail when they were doing a landscape or some sort of scene helped them when they were writing setting and character appearances and stuff like that. Maybe I need to start painting. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just <laughs> I pay attention to things that most people don't pay attention to. My kids get really annoyed with me because I notice everything they do <laughs> and they don't want me to. I think that that probably helps me be a writer, that I just pay attention to little things and in settings and in atmospheres, but also in the way that people act and react to things. I kind of, you know, file it away in my brain for later, but I don't do anything like painting or anything like that. I might have to put some thought into that one. Be a, a people watcher? I am a people watcher, yes. I had a I had a guy um in high school, I haven't thought about this in years, but I would not really purposely be eavesdropping on conversations, but I like I couldn't help but hear these conversations that were going on around me. And I had a friend, his name was Ben, and he was like, Do you just listen to everybody's conversations? Do you know every secret in this school? And I was like, Well, I do know a lot. it's not that I'm purposely trying to get dirt on people. I just can't not hear these things going on around me. So I guess I've just always been like that. I can't block it out. I just sort of absorb everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, what is the life of Heather Miller like outside of writing? Well, I think I've told you most of that already. I have all these kids, you see. Uh, they they take up most. Don't ever get away from the kids. I mean, sometimes, but I'm a very like introverted person. I don't like to go out and do stuff where there's a lot of people. My garden is my happy place. I like to grow things. I like to go hiking. I'm a big believer in the power of nature and, and fresh air and sunshine. And that's also a good place to kind of clear your head and let story ideas come. Or when you're in a place writing a story where you've kind of got a knot build up and you need to untangle it so you can figure out what you're doing with your own story. You know, you go out and mm -hmm. walk in the woods for an hour. I love to do that. I'm also a baker. Nice. Uh, <laughs> do cakes, you do, cookies, uh, candy. Do you do white ship macadamia? I mean, I have. I like, oh, I, I love uh, white chocolate chip macadamia cookies, but not many people in my house do. So when I make them, I have to eat them. Darn. Mm. Darn it. Oh, yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying about being an introvert. My fiance and I are both introverts. And, you know, the I, I don't follow sports, but I'm well aware of the fact that the Astros are in the World Series right now. And they had this massive parade and she works downtown and she was pinned in. She couldn't leave. Like if she wanted to leave earlier, whatever, they had all the roads shut down. She couldn't leave. And you would think the concept of a parade would be like fun, like kind of, you know, the city coming together. Everything's pleasant. Everybody's having a blast. She said there was ambulances, engines. They caught some guy with a gun, you know, just all kinds oh, of stupidity. So, yeah, I think uh, being introverted is definitely better for your health. <laughs> it can be. Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't like crowds. I don't like noise. I get 
introvert hangovers if I have to go out and be in places where there's lots of people like, okay, I spent three hours in a crowded place and now I need three days by myself to recover from it. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely one of those people. Sometimes I even have to tell my own children, like, mommy needs some alone time. Mm. You got to go somewhere else. Because yeah. even kids can get to be a little much when you are an introvert, yeah. especially when you have a bunch of kids. It's like, okay, you guys go somewhere else. I love you, but leave me alone. Yeah, I look at people with kids like they're like saints, basically. Like, I don't know how you have that level of patience. <laughs> I don't know how I have that level of patience either. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I don't have that level of patience. <laughs> and the wooden spoon comes out, goddammit. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, tell me about this century-old haunted house that you live in. Well, I can't really say it's haunted. You've been reading my author bio, which is where yeah. you got that from, I'm sure. Mm. But you'll notice it says, probably haunted. Because you would think when you buy a house that's 100 years old, this house was built in 1920. And okay. it's like a big, huge, rambling farmhouse sort of place in this little teeny tiny town in Oklahoma. And you would think with a house that old that surely there would be some sort of haunting or something. And it has all these wonderful, creepy little hidden places in it. When the realtor was showing us the house, she said, here's your Harry Potter closet, because under the back stairway, there's this little, you know, you just open this little door and there's this little hidden cubby place back in there where you could tell that the people who lived here before their kids had kind of made it their clubhouse and they had drawn all over the walls inside, which is... <laughs> But anyway, and we do have what we call the secret stairs, it's a two-story house, and there's the main staircase at the front of the house. And then in the back, you just open this door and there's this little narrow stairway that, you know, makes two really sharp 90 degree turns and takes oh. you up to the back of the second floor. I would have eaten that up when I was a kid. Which would be the perfect place to be haunted, right? But Yeah. But, but nothing. I mean, we do get... You know, doors will open or close on their own sometimes, but I'm pretty sure that's just because this is an old and slightly drafty house. Mm -hmm. I would love for it to be haunted by, you know, a nice-ish ghost. I'm sure I could make up a story about a ghost that could be here, but in reality, the haunting of my house is just in my head. Well, does the ambiance help your writing? It does. I love to sit downstairs in the morning before anybody else gets up. I mean, it is an old house and it looks like an old house. It's got all the, you know, built in bookshelves and the weird little everything's uneven in this house. There's not a single <laughs> even floor anywhere. So everything sort of tilt a little bit every, <laughs> you know, here and there. And it definitely I could set a story in this house quite easily and in fact the story i'm writing right now she lives in a house very much like this one so uh. it's not a ghost story though and you know it's a small town here so small town horror is a great little subgenre, mm. and so i definitely base a lot of things in my stories in towns that are very similar to the one where i live right now well are you a film fan a fan of film <laughs> I'm really not, um, which is, I know if you're a horror fan, you're supposed to love the movies. And I'm just like, well, not I don't, supposed I, to just, yeah. Well, people assume if you say I love horror, they assume that you mean just movies or books and movies. And I just, I don't watch a lot of TV or movies. So people talk about all oh, the great horror movies that are out. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I don't 
it's really hard for me to just sit down and sit still for an hour and a half or two hours and watch a movie. My brain wanders and I want to get up and do something else. Or I'll have a book and I'll be reading my book while my family's watching the movie. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really not, I really don't do a lot of movies. When I do, I do like old school. You can't beat a ghost story, a haunted house story to me in book or movie. That's just my favorite kind of horror, no matter what sort of media we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, watching a movie is a very passive process. So compared to reading, I can see how you uh, would get fidgety. And I hate jump scares. Really? I hate them because I will jump and scream. I am that kind of person. (laughs) If it's in a book and it's scary, I love it. That's great. I'm like, yes, scary stuff. But if it's a movie and it's a jump scare or if you go to like a haunted house attraction at Halloween and somebody comes out and grabs you, I mean, I will scream (laughs) and I I don't like screaming. So I, mm -mm, nope, that's not my kind of thing. Not a fan of the Conjuring franchise? I have seen one of those movies because my mom convinced me to watch it with her because she loved scary movies. And I was like, yeah, I'm traumatized now. I need to go read a book. (laughs) Well, to each his own. But how was Halloween? Halloween is great. Around here, Halloween is really for the kids. I don't do super scary stuff. You know, we decorate our porch and our front yard. Not huge, but huge for where we live. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got the giant spiders and the skeleton and the lights and we carve a bunch of jack-o'-lanterns and all the kids in town know that if you come to our house, you're going to get a lot of candy. So we just kind of, I mean, tradition at our house is Halloween. We order pizza. After we eat pizza, kids get on their costumes, go trick-or-treating. And then even like my grown kids come home for Halloween and I bake a bunch of goodies and we watch, you know, the great pumpkin charlie brown and it's just fun spooky fun kind of kids centered stuff for halloween around here i would love one day to be able to go to you know an adults only halloween kind of thing and have a really cool costume but nobody's invited me to one of those yet so it's, <laughs> it's all about the kids on halloween around here well coming full circle back to grandma nan If Grandma Nan was with us today and was able to read tales my grandmother told me, what do you think she would say? She would probably say, what took you so long? (laughs) How come you didn't write this till you were 40 something? Uh, I told you these stories forever ago. Why didn't you write them down before now? But really, she would love it. I'm sure that up in heaven or whatever, maybe, I don't know, maybe her ghost could haunt my house, but I'm sure that she would love it. She would get a kick out of it. She would think it was hilarious. She would be like, I can't believe people like my dumb stories Mm -hmm. because she would, she would think they were dumb stories. She, (laughs) she would love it. She really would. I know that she would. We're very much alike, my grandma and I. So I feel confident in saying that's how she would feel. Well, Heather, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. As we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Something you want to reiterate? I would just say if you want to look through stuff that I've written and published, I do have a website. It is heathermillerhorror.com. All of my solo projects and all the anthologies that I've been in are on there with links to where you can buy them. 
There's also a few free short stories and poems that you can see on there. So basically everything you could possibly need to know about me is on that website, heathermillerhorror.com. And I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. All of those are under hmillerhorror. So facebook.com slash hmillerhorror, instagram.com slash hmillerhorror. My reviews are on my Instagram is mostly my reviews and then my Facebook is more sort of author centric stuff and you can get to my review website through my Heather Miller Horror website there's a link down at the bottom that will take you to the Quaint and Curious Volumes review blog all right well listeners at home all links will be in the description and Heather thank you again for joining me thank you very much for having me And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
Why'd you stay?